6, starting at verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, He said to His disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill Him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In the pouring of this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you today and we remember this Lord's Supper that Jesus instituted on the night in which he was betrayed. We remember that he died for our sins, that his body was broken for us, and that his blood was poured out to initiate the new covenant that we might have the forgiveness of our sins and the Holy Spirit to live in us and help us to live for you. Father, we thank you for this reconciliation that you have accomplished, for what Jesus has done by His life and death to bring us to You. And Father, we just pray that as we speak about that this morning, as we remember that, as we meditate on what You have done, that this would be a sweet time for us of celebration, a a somber time of remembering the cost of our salvation. We pray that what You've done would be real in our hearts and that it would impact us such that we worship You in a greater way, that we exalt You and and, and worship You and love You for our salvation even more than we have already. Father, we thank You for Your amazing grace. We thank You for Jesus Christ. And we pray that You would bless our time together in Your Word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the passage that we just read is really going to be our focus this morning, although we're going to go to multiple places 
in Scripture. Uh, This passage sets the stage for Jesus' institution of the Lord's Supper. Jesus transformed the Passover into something new. He was inaugurating the new covenant. The next day, He would literally pour out His blood for the forgiveness of sins. And His body would be broken for the salvation of His people. And on this night that we read about in our passage, Jesus fulfilled the Passover. This was most likely the night where the Passover lamb was killed. And the very next day, the true Passover lamb would be killed. 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7 says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And so Jesus fulfills the Passover. And in its place, He established what we call the Lord's Supper. But what is the Lord's Supper? Why do we eat this bread and and drink this wine or drink this grape juice? Does this ceremony do anything in our lives? If so, what does it do? And how does it work? How should a local church practice this? How often should we participate? Who can take the Lord's Supper? Should children take the Lord's Supper? What about the warnings in Scripture about judgment associated with the Lord's Supper? Is it maybe safer at times not to participate in the Lord's Supper? And and what I'm trying to show is that there are many questions about the Lord's Supper. Add to that that the Roman Catholic Church called the Lord's Supper the Mass in the days of the Reformation. And the word Mass comes from the Latin word Missa, which it means the dismissal. Uh, Another word associated with the Mass is the Eucharist, which comes from the root of thanksgiving. Jesus gave thanks, and then he broke the bread. And so the Catholic Church calls the bread the Eucharist. And the Catholics in Martin Luther's day, and even to this day, believe that the bread actually becomes the body of Christ, and that Christ is re-sacrificed in the Mass for the forgiveness of sins. The Reformers taught that the Roman doctrine of the Mass was blasphemous. They all agreed together against the Catholics, and rightly so, In 1520, Martin Luther wrote the Babylonian captivity of the church. And he argued that the mass was holding the church captivity just like Babylon took Israel into captivity in the Old Testament. Martin Luther said, I regard the preaching and selling of the mass as a sacrifice or good work as the greatest of all abominations. And I think he was exactly right in that. But even though the Reformers all agreed together against Rome, they could not agree amongst themselves on the nature of the Lord's Supper. Luther and Ulrich Zwingli wrote books against each other's views. In uh, 1527, at the Frankfurt Book Fair, Martin Luther's book was on display that the words of Christ still stand firm against the fanatics. And uh, Zwingli's reply in his book was called A Friendly exegesis addressed to Martin Luther. And then Calvin came about half a generation later and he disagreed with all three of these. Now we're going to look at the historical views later, but for now I just want you to see that there are many questions about this supper and I hope that we can answer those in the message today. Many churches and many individuals take this supper without knowing what it is, why they do it, or what it's supposed to do. And if you don't understand what the supper is, then I would argue that the supper will not benefit you the way that it's intended to. Again, not everyone would agree with that. The Roman Catholic Church taught that the Mass was effectual even if the people didn't understand it. And you could pay for Masses to be done on your behalf, and it would be effective, they taught, even if you weren't there when it was done. That's why they did the service in Latin. It didn't matter if the people understood it because it was effective whether you understood what was going on or not. It wasn't until 1962 that the Catholic Church began to do the Mass in the language of the people, in the language of the country in which they were in. But we need to understand what this supper is all about. And to do so this morning, we're going to look at the Lord's Supper under five headings. We're going to look at first the illustration of the Lord's Supper in the Old Testament Passover. We're going to look at the institution then of the Lord's Supper 
in the Gospel accounts. We'll look at the distortion of the Lord's Supper in the Corinthian church. Look at 1 Corinthians 11 and that passage. Then we'll talk briefly about the division of the Lord's Supper in church history and the various views on the Lord's Supper through the history of the church. And finally, number five, we'll look at the celebration of the Lord's Supper at Grace Bible Fellowship and we'll partake of the Lord's Supper together. Really, for the, this is going to be for the first time as a local church, so pretty cool. By doing this, I, I hope that we should have a good understanding of this thing that the Lord commanded us to do. And then through that, I think it's going to help us to get the most out of our time whenever we take the Lord's Supper. And so my goal for this message is to bring unity to our body as we participate in this supper together and to help us to glorify God in how we administer it. And so let's look, number one, at the illustration of the Lord's Supper in the Old Testament Passover. And for this, you could turn to Exodus chapter 12. Uh, We're going to look at a number of verses in Exodus chapter 12. This is the illustration of the Lord's Supper in the Old Testament Passover. The Lord's Supper began again on the Thursday night before Jesus died. And it was during the Passover celebration. And it's truly amazing how God orchestrated really all of history so that Jesus' death, which fulfilled the Passover, happened on the very night of the Passover. Jesus took the Passover meal that evening, which represented the lamb, and he said, this is my body. This is my blood of the covenant. And so let's go back and we'll see the Passover because the Passover pointed forward to Jesus and what he would do for the forgiveness of our sins. The Passover is the illustration of the Lord's Supper. The Passover was the final judgment on Egypt. God had sent nine plagues on the Egyptians and the final plague was to be the most severe. And so if you're in Exodus chapter 12, look at verse 12. It says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so the Lord was going to pass through all the land of Egypt, and He was going to execute judgment. And it was a judgment on all the gods of Egypt. In the other plagues, Israel didn't need to do anything to protect themselves. God had always made a distinction between Israel and Egypt. The other plagues were different than this final one. This time, God was going to come down and He was going to strike the whole land. This was a divine wrath. This judgment would have been executed against Israel as well. Israel would have died in this plague as well. And here's why. Because Israel was guilty. They were as guilty as the Egyptians were. Israel had worshipped the gods of Egypt as much as the Egyptians did. And Ezekiel even talks about how they carried some of those gods through the time of the wilderness and brought them out of the land of Egypt and into the wilderness. And so Israel had sinned and they deserved judgment as much as the Egyptians did. But God provided a way of deliverance. And this way pointed forward to what Jesus would do. Each family was to take a lamb. Look at verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. They killed the lamb without blemish and they they took its blood and they put it on the doorposts of their house. Verse 7, Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted with fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Verse 11, In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste 
It is the Lord's Passover. Again, verse 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And then the following verses tell how Israel was to do this feast year after year to remember how the Lord had passed over them that night. Yahweh said, When I see the blood, I will pass over you. But if a family didn't put blood on the door, their firstborn would have died just like the Egyptians. And so that night, every family slaughtered their unblemished lamb and they brushed some of the blood on the doorpost. You know, can you imagine them that night as they waited for the destroyer to pass through the land and yet to pass over them because of the blood on their doorposts? I know for me, I probably wouldn't have ate much lamb that night. And at midnight, that night, verse 29, at midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, and he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. In the middle of that night, Pharaoh sent Israel out. And so they were to have their unleavened bread and their belt strapped so that they were ready to go out. And the the Lord sent Israel out that night, and the Lord had spared all those who obeyed. Or we could maybe say all those who had believed the word of the Lord through Moses. But it was not the lamb itself that took away their sin. The Passover lamb simply pointed forward to Jesus Christ whose sacrifice could and would make atonement for sin. The Passover was a picture of redemption. The innocent lamb died in the place of the guilty people. Jesus Christ then is the ultimate Passover lamb. He poured out His blood to atone for our sins. He was a lamb without blemish. He was sinless. And He died to pay the penalty for sin as our substitute. And because of Christ, the Lord can pass over our sins. We deserve God's wrath, but Christ bore it in our place. And so the Passover was the illustration of the Lord's Supper. Secondly, then, we want to see the institution of the Lord's Supper in the Gospel accounts. The institution of the Lord's Supper. Now, we read from Matthew already. Matthew 26, 26 to 30 is really the the main passage in the book of Matthew. But all four Gospels speak about the Lord's Supper. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the institution of the Lord's Supper in very similar words to what we read this morning. John focuses more on the discussion of of Christ on that night and the things that he left with his disciples as his final words. But we'll follow the text in Matthew 26, starting at verse 26. Jesus took the bread, which would have been most likely the unleavened bread of the Passover, Although the word that is translated bread there is really is just the general word for bread. It, it could be used for unleavened bread or leavened bread. Um, the, the history of the church tells us that, as far as we can tell, most of the early church used uh, leavened bread, just regular bread, until about 1000 AD. But still, most likely, Jesus here used the unleavened bread that was required at the Passover. The traditional Passover meal included an explanation of the elements as the the father of the family would hand out the different elements. He would explain the meaning of each of the elements. And the father of the family would take the bread and say a prayer of blessing or thanksgiving, and then he would break the bread and pass it out to the members of the family. Jesus said a prayer of blessing. He broke the bread and he gave it to his disciples, and now he makes a change in the, the, the liturgy of the Passover meal, and he says, take, eat, this is my body. And so Jesus associated the broken bread with his body. Now later in church history, there would be a debate around this phrase, does, 
does is in this is my body, does it mean that somehow the bread became the body of Jesus Christ? What would the disciples have thought if they were sitting there as Jesus says to them, this is my body? They would have thought that the bread was, or, or would they have thought that the bread was Jesus' body and that eating it was some kind of a cannibalism thing? Remember Peter, he wouldn't eat anything that was unclean, never mind Jesus' body. Jesus' body was right there in front of them as he passes it, the bread to them and says, this is my body. They would have understood that Jesus meant something like, this represents my body. You know, Jesus had said many things like that, right? He said, I am the vine. He said, I am the door. And the disciples had learned to understand these kinds of sayings. By eating, they would then begin to see that somehow they would benefit from Jesus' body. They would receive some kind of a benefit from the body of Christ. Verse 27, similarly, he says, Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my, bo- this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The cup is Jesus' blood in the same way that the bread is his body. The cup would have been wine, uh, but it wasn't as strong of, as today's wine, and it would have usually been cut with twice or or three times the amount of water. And so he took the cup, he gave thanks, and he gave it to them. And then notice he gave them a command. He says, drink of it, all of you. And so both the eating of of the bread that represents his body and the drinking of the cup that represents his blood were commanded. Luke 22 verse 19 adds that Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Now we'll see when we come to the Corinthian passage that the, what the Lord instituted here is something that the church is to continue to do as the Lord's disciples. Verse 28 explains the drink of this, all of you. Verse 28, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The phrase, my blood of the covenant, reminds us of Exodus 24 and verse 8. Exodus 24 and verse 8 says this, And Moses took the blood, and he threw it on the people, and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you with all these words. The biblical covenants were all ratified with blood. And Jesus is introducing the new covenant here. Just like Moses sprinkled blood on the people to show that they were part of the Mosaic Covenant, so Jesus had His disciples drink from the cup to show that they were part of the New Covenant. Jesus said, My blood of the covenant is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now as we think about the New Covenant, I want you to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. This is what Jesus is inaugurating for his disciples here. Now, we've, we've looked at this passage before, but it's a, an important passage, Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31, 31. The prophet Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The new covenant is better than the old because it contains a promise of transformation. In the new covenant, everyone knows the Lord. And He writes His law on our hearts. That is, there's a new capacity for obedience 
to the law and to the righteous commands of the Lord. And this is why one cannot break the new covenant like Israel broke the old covenant, because in the new covenant we are born again, we are new creatures in Christ. And with that new birth, we are also forgiven of all of our sins. The new covenant also involves the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. Note the similar language here. We're going to look at verses 25 and following, but look at the similar language here of a transformed heart. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is another new covenant passage. And the seal of the new covenant is the Holy Spirit. If the spirit is within you, you are part of the new covenant. And the way to know if you have the spirit is to look at the fruit of your life. Have you been increasingly cleansed from idols? Do you have a soft heart that responds to God and His Word? Are you walking according to the righteousness uh, and obeying God's commandments? These are signs that the Spirit is within you and that you are part of the new covenant. Another way to tell if you're part of the new covenant is simply to ask, have you trusted in Christ alone for salvation? Have you believed on Jesus Christ? Have you come to Him? And so Jesus initiated this ordinance with His disciples. The the new covenant is for Jesus' disciples. Again, true believers. And Jesus initiated it that very night. He ratified it the very next day with His blood. And He fulfilled it on the day of Passover when He sent the Holy Spirit, the day of Pentecost, when He sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in His people. And so our sins can be forgiven because Jesus poured out His blood on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. Now we need to go to the book of Corinthians where we see that the Lord's Supper is something that we as New Covenant believers are to continue to do in remembrance of Him. Paul loved the Corinthian church, but the Corinthian church really was a mess. They were practicing the Lord's Supper, but not in the right manner. They were defaming the Lord's Supper. Maybe we could even say they were desecrating the Lord's Supper. I've called it number three, the distortion of the Lord's Supper in the Corinthian church. The distortion of the Lord's Supper in the Corinthian church. And you could turn to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The Corinthians were taking the Lord's Supper and distorting its picture. They were divided. They were greedy. They were selfish. And in this celebration that was intended to remind them of the sacrifice of Christ for their sins, they were sinning. And in the supper that was intended to symbolize their unity, they were divided. Look at verse 7 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the, for the better, but for the worse. I said verse 7, but I'm actually reading from verse 17 here. Verse 18, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, 
I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and cup and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. And so Paul does not commend the Corinthians. He says their gatherings are not for the better, but for the worse. It's worse for them to have a service than just to stay at home. He even says that whatever they eat, it's not the Lord's Supper. They were not taking the Lord's Supper together. In verse 21, in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. I love in verse 22, what? Paul can't believe that they're doing this. The people are feasting and other people had nothing. And the Lord's Supper is then causing division in the church. And this behavior of the church when they gathered together brought the Lord's discipline on that local church. Again in verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. The key to avoiding this discipline, Paul says, was for the Corinthians to judge themselves. In verse 28, Paul calls them to examine themselves. Each person should examine himself or herself. And they were to discern the Lord's body in verse 29. Now, a question comes up here when they are to discern the Lord's body. Are they to discern the, the, the body of the Lord or is it the body of the church? And I lean towards Paul saying here that this is the body of the church. But the Lord's body is also called the church, so I'm not sure if it really makes much difference. But the, the church was to discern the fact that uh, the Lord's body, that they were a, a group, a unified group of people, members of the same body. The church was to recognize their unity, to consider their unity when they partook of the supper. And so divisions and factions and bitterness and envy and strife, these kinds of relational frictions aren't consistent with the forgiveness that we have in Christ and the power of the new covenant. To eat and drink at the Lord's table unworthily by hanging on to a sin like that, Paul says, makes one guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. It's at this table that we remember that Christ spilled His blood to forgive and cleanse us of sin. To drink this and to cling to sin is entirely inconsistent. Will you hold near to your heart the sin while you eat the bread that pictures Christ's body broken for that sin? Will you cherish that wickedness which made Christ shed His blood while you drink His blood? No, it makes no sense to do it that way. To eat and drink unworthily, to eat and drink worthily means that we renew our commitments as disciples of Christ. It means that we examine ourselves and confess and repent of sin. And if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged, Paul says. When we judge or examine ourselves, we need to remember the gospel. We need to remember that we are sinners saved by grace. That our standing with God isn't based on our performance or on how righteously we did that week, but it's based on Jesus Christ who represents us to God. 
We examine ourselves whether we need to confess and repent of any sin. We examine ourselves whether our relationships are hindered by something. We aren't looking to see if we lived perfectly, but we're we're examining to see if we really are truly living for the Lord, if we are really remembering Him and what He did for us. Notice again in verses 24 and 25, we are commanded to do this. We are to eat and drink in remembrance of Christ. We're to examine and we are to eat. We're not to eat unworthily, but we are to eat. And so we don't skip the Lord's Supper because we aren't right with somebody. We make sure that we are discerning the body and then we participate together. Look at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. The Lord's Supper looks backwards to Christ's death. It's a proclamation of His death. The the Supper is a sermon in a symbol. It looks forward as well until He comes. We remember His death, His resurrection, and His imminent return. Jesus poured out His blood, conquered sin and death, and He is coming again. And so the distortion in the Corinthian church teaches us to take the Lord's Supper seriously. This is a solemn celebration, and the Lord Himself takes it seriously. Next, I want to cover some of the division in the history of the church. Now, as we do that, church history is not our authority, but it's helpful to see how those who live for Christ before us use Scripture to guide them. As the church encountered false teaching, God raised up teachers and preachers to defend the truth, and their direction is very helpful for us. We follow them as they follow Scripture. Those who ignore church history often fall into the same false teachings that have already been rejected by the true church. Again, church history is not our authority, but it's a helpful guide. Even when they get it wrong, it helps us to get it right. And so number four then, let's look at the division over the Lord's Supper in church history. For the first thousand years or so of church history, After Paul gave his instructions to the Corinthians, there really wasn't much controversy on the Lord's Supper. Most churches partook of the Lord's Supper on a weekly basis. Jesus had said, and you're still in Corinthians there, verse 24, uh, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, as often as you drink it, Jesus said. And it seems that the Corinthians did this every week. Look at verse 20. He says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. And so it seems like when the Corinthian church gathered, they participated in the Lord's Supper, which Paul then says, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat when you eat it like that. But they they did this on a weekly basis, it seems. That seems to be the practice really of all the New Testament churches. Acts 2.41 says, Those who received His word were baptized, and there were added about 3,000 souls, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And so the early church devoted themselves. They were baptized. That's the one ordinance of the church. And they devoted themselves to the teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, there's the Lord's Supper, and prayers. And as the church progressed really through the Middle Ages, it starts to get more and more what we think of as the Catholic Church. As the, as the church kind of goes through the ages, it gets more and more similar to the Roman Catholic Church as we understand it today. And the gospel through the Middle Ages is increasingly lost and doctrinal error really, that came into the church at that time impacted everything, including the Lord's Supper. The Catholics believed in salvation by grace, but not in salvation by grace alone. For them, grace came through the sacraments, and one of those sacraments was the Lord's Supper, which again, they called the Mass. They had, and they still have to this day, seven sacraments, and by participating in the sacraments, they thought that grace was given 
that made the worshiper more holy. And so in the Roman Catholic system, in order to be saved, somebody must be made actually holy to be saved. They believe it's heresy to say that we're saved by grace, that that God imputes Christ's righteousness to us by grace alone. They don't believe in justification by faith the way that we do, where, where I am counted righteous even though I still sin and have sin. For them, that kind of teaching is heresy. And so they say that salvation is by grace, but you need to do your part in order to get that grace. And through the seven sacraments of baptism, confirmation, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, penance, which is kind of a doing little works of, of repentance, the anointing of the sick, which includes the last rites, holy orders if you're a priest, or matrimony if you're a married person. Through these, the Catholic Church believed that people received grace and that grace would enable them to win their salvation by being holy enough to deserve salvation. And so eating the Eucharist, one author said, was like taking spiritual medicine to help make you more acceptable to God or like drinking a a spiritual can of Red Bull energy drink. And in 1215, very late in church history, in the Fourth Lateran Council, the Roman Catholic Church made what they call transubstantiation, the official teaching of the church. They believed that the bread became the actual body of Christ and that the wine became His blood. They said that the priest had the power to call Christ down from heaven. And worst of all, they taught that the priest re-sacrificed Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And they believe this to this day. And from there, because they thought this was actually the body and blood of Christ, they refused to serve the cup to the people lest they spill Christ's blood. Plus, they allowed these masses, like I said earlier, to be done on others' behalf so you could get the benefit benefit of Christ's re-sacrifice without even being present at the service. Now, if the Corinthians were judged, what's going to be the case for the Roman Catholic priest who sacrifices Christ multiple times in a week? And of course, all of this Roman Catholic doctrine is blasphemous. And no wonder that Luther said, that it was the greatest of all abominations. Hebrews 10 and verse 11 to 14 just kind of settles this doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church's heresy. It says this, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Christ died once, and that single sacrifice made His people perfect for all time. There is no re-sacrifice of Christ, and He is also not the bread. His body does not become Bread. He is seated at the right hand of God. His body is a human body and can only be in one place at a time. The cup does not become His blood. It represents His blood. And the Reformers taught that grace is not a thing that can be transferred and, and through various religious duties, grace is not kind of spread around. But when God gives us grace, He gives us Himself. And so grace is not something that comes to us separate from God. And here's really the key. Grace does not help us to be good enough to deserve salvation, to bring us to God. Grace saves us and brings us to God, and then we will do good. Let me say that again. Grace does not help us to be good enough to deserve salvation, and through that bring us to God. Grace saves us and brings us to God. And then from that, flowing out of that relationship with God, we will do good. And it's for that reason that the Reformers didn't talk much about grace. They just preferred to speak about Christ. God's grace joins us to Christ. And in Him, we have all the blessings of salvation. Now, the Reformers agreed together against the Roman Catholic Church, but they didn't agree 
on everything. Martin Luther rejected transubstantiation that the bread and wine were transformed so that they became the body and blood of Christ. And even while the, in, the, in the Roman system, it, it continued, they recognized, to look like the same grapes and, and, and bread that we put out on the table, but they said there was a, a mystical transformation so that the outward elements looked like bread and wine still, but inwardly the substance of it was the body and blood of Christ. Luther taught that we must accept that the bread and wine were the body and blood of Christ by faith. He rejected the metaphysics of it, but he still insisted on literally understanding, this is my body. Ulrich Zwingli, on the other hand, argued that is does not need to be taken literally. And he was right, I would say, on that. He understood that this is my body, the way that the disciples in the upper room on that night would have understood, this is my body. They would have taken it to mean that this represents my body and my blood. Zwingli said the supper is a sign of the believer's connection with Christ. And a passage that he often turned to to explain this is John chapter 6. Why don't you turn with me to John chapter 6. John 6, we'll read starting at verse 47. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh." The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in Him. As the living Father sent me, and I, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me also, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as He taught at Capernaum. When many of His disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in Himself that His disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? What then if you, then what if you see, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Jesus is calling here a a believer, one who feeds on Him. We are those who have His life flowing through our veins. Verse 56 makes it really clear. Whoever feeds on My flesh and drinks My blood abides in Me and I in Him. Verse 63 also helps us understand what Jesus means here. We don't eat His flesh in some physical way. We abide in Him through the Holy Spirit who gives life. And so Zwingli kind of highlighted this. We don't eat Christ in some physical way, but by the Spirit, we have the life of Christ flowing through our veins. Zwingli also highlighted the words, do this in remembrance of me. And he called the Lord's Supper a memorial. In eating and drinking, we remember and proclaim Christ's death. In physical bread... uh, The physical bread and wine profits nothing, Zwingli would say. It's the work of the Spirit that gives life. And the Mennonites, just so you know, largely followed Zwingli on this. Now, half a generation later, Calvin entered the discussion and he rejected the Catholic view. He rejected Luther's view, I would say rightly so. Uh, He said that Christ is at the right hand of God, not in multiple places, at least in his humanity. And he said that if Luther was right, then Christ's body is separate from his blood, which he called absurd. But Calvin didn't like Zwingli's emphasis that 
the Lord's Supper was merely a memorial. He taught that we truly do feast on Christ spiritually by the Holy Spirit. And for Calvin, the Spirit mediates the presence of Christ even though Christ is not physically present. And this is probably why many churches call the Lord's Supper communion. Now, because we commune with Christ as we participate in this ordinance. Now, I think Calvin went too far in his defense of the Lord's Supper as more than a memorial, but I, I do like his emphasis on the Holy Spirit. We are united to Christ by the Holy Spirit, and we have a real communion with the risen Lord. He is always with us in this way, though. It's not like something extra special happens in the eating of the Lord's Supper. We always have this relationship with Christ by the Holy Spirit. And so as we participate in the Lord's Supper, we especially remember this fellowship that we have with the Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, on the one hand, it's more than just a mere memory, but on the other hand, it's hard for me to say that something beyond the union with Christ that we always experience is happening when we partake. And so hopefully that kind of clarifies where, where I'm at as far as my understanding of the Lord's Supper. And that brings us really to the fifth and final thing that I want to say, and then we can partake in this supper together. We want to talk about how we will separate, how we will celebrate the Lord's Supper at Grace Bible Fellowship. And so that's number five, the celebration of the Lord's Supper at Grace Bible Fellowship. Now I'm going to frame this section with some questions that I want to answer. And I won't spend much time here because we've already covered most of this in the, the thing that preceded. But number one, I guess if we want to number these, when will we take the Lord's Supper? When will we take the Lord's Supper? We're going to do it as part of our regular church service. When the Corinthians and uh, that, that's when the Corinthians and most of the early church partook. And usually we're going to do that after the sermon, but sometimes we might switch up the order of our service. In my study this week, I realized that there's really not a good reason that I can think of to refrain from doing the Lord's Supper every week. And it seems that the the, the weekly practice of the Lord's Supper was the practice of the early church for the first at least thousand years of church history. Jesus, though, said as often as you do it. So there's freedom in how often we want to do it, but most churches until recent times celebrated the Lord's Supper weekly. And for the next few weeks, as you know, we plan to do it weekly and we're going to see how it goes from there. Secondly, then, who should take the Lord's Supper? Who should take the Lord's Supper? The, the Lord's Supper is for disciples of Jesus Christ. It's for believers. Specifically, it's for believers who can discern the body of the Lord, who can examine themselves, who can do those things and say, yes, I am truly united with Christ. Yes, His Spirit is within me. I abide in Christ and Christ abides in me. To eat the supper unworthily brings judgment or brings God's discipline. And so we should exercise caution here. We, we, we don't want to serve the Lord's Supper and facilitate judgment. Now at the same time, since this is for believers, we don't want to exclude true believers from taking this supper. This is meant to picture our unity. And so if someone has communion with Christ spiritually, we should allow them to take the Lord's Supper with us physically. And we will allow, then we're going to allow true believers to participate with us. And we're going to leave it with them to decide if they should participate. We won't bar anyone from participating just because they aren't a member of our church. Now, one area of difficulty here is with children. Children will often profess faith early, and that's a wonderful thing if they do. But it takes time to see if their profession is, is genuine, if they are truly saved. And so my recommendation for the Lord's Supper is that, is that we wait, or the children wait, until they are baptized. If you're not ready to be baptized, you're not ready for the Lord's Supper. In light of the discipline for taking the, the supper wrongly, and because we don't want our children to be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, 
we recommend that they wait until they're baptized. And the baptismal process that we're going to put in place includes an interview with the pastor that's going to help people examine their eternal state and, and see if they are truly born again, if they're truly saved, and then ready to participate with us in baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so who should take communion? True believers. And how will we take the Lord's Supper? There, there's a number of things that, that I want to say here. Typically, I'm going to do a gospel presentation. We want to remember what Jesus did and why He did it. In His perfect holiness, God could not ignore sin. He had to punish sin because He is righteous and just. But God in His great love for us came up with a way to save us from His wrath. We were the rightful objects of God's wrath. We had sinned against the holy God. But He sent Jesus to redeem us. Jesus came to give His life a ransom for many. He came to give His body to be broken for us. He came to pour out His blood to atone for our sin. And those who trust Christ, who believe in Him, will receive the benefits of what Christ has done. Their sins will be forgiven. They will be counted righteous because of they are joined to Jesus Christ. His righteousness is now theirs and their sin has become His. This is the Gospel. This is what we remember when we participate in the Lord's Supper. And then I'll tell everyone that this is for true believers. I will warn about taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. I will, I will warn about the, that the Lord takes this very seriously. And I will also remind us that we're to, to take the Lord's Supper, that this is a command for believers, that we are to do this in remembrance of Him. And so we'll examine ourselves and we'll participate. I'll, I'll most often give a, a quiet time for prayer, a quiet time for examination and for meditation. Think on, in those times, think on what Christ did for you. Recommit your life to Him. Confess any sins that come to mind. Praise His name for salvation and remember that He is coming again. It should be a somber time and yet a joyful time. Sometimes as we reflect, we'll have some music playing quietly. And then I'll read from one of the passages in Corinthians or the Gospels. And I'll pray. And then we'll hand out the elements. First the bread, unleavened bread. And then when everyone has the bread, we will take it together as a sign of our unity. Today, because then, then we'll hand out the grape juice. We'll, we, we won't use real wine. Most churches did that until uh, the, the abolition movement in America. But for conscience sake, we won't use real wine. Uh, and the same thing will happen. We will hand it out so everyone has it. And then we'll, I'll say something. I'll, I'll remind us of the passages. And then we'll take it together. Now today, because of the, the COVID regulations, we don't, we're not going to pass the elements. And what I'd like you to do is to come to the nearest table. You can see there's the, the Lord's Supper on both sides. And what we've done is we've put them together so that you have the bread and the juice together in one package. And while you reflect... On and examine yourself and meditate on what Christ has done for your salvation, uh, I'd ask you that we come family by family and, and take the elements and then go back and, and sit down. And then while you sit, you can, you can meditate, you can examine, you can think about what this is all about. And uh, just kind of one by one, family by family, starting in the front, come and, and grab the elements. And I'll give you some time to examine yourself. And while you do that, we'll, we'll take the elements and then you'll return to your seat. And when we all have it, we will participate together. And so this is the Lord's Supper. This is what the Lord has done for us to remember Him. And we have a real communion with the risen Lord as we do this. And so go ahead now. We'll, let's, we'll take the bread and the juice. But let's just pray before we do that. Father, we thank You for this time together, we thank You for Your body broken for us. We thank You for the blood that You spilled that we could have our sins forgiven, that You paid the penalty for our sin that we deserved. 
We deserved your wrath, but because the Lamb of, of God was slain, because Jesus Christ died for us, our sins are forgiven and we can have this relationship with you. We thank you so much for this, Father. Help us as we think about this to meditate on it well. We pray that you would bless this time and use it in our life. Work by your Spirit in this time and cause your people to remember you, to love you, and to live more for you because of this time together, we ask in Jesus' name.